0: with me. Father God, I am an unworthy vessel to carry your life-giving word to these people. Um, Spirit, I pray that you would empower me for this task. pray that you would come and meet each heart this morning, feed it with the bread of life. Lord, please, would these people live? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I want to tell you a story about a king, Uh, a king who lived about 3,000 years ago, and he's famous for being one of the wisest men who ever lived. When he was a young man and had just become king, God came to him and said, ask me for anything, and I will give it to you. Wow, if God said that to you, what would you ask for? Forgiveness, that's a great thing to ask for. Eternal life. The first thing that comes into my head is a Ferrari. Um, I don't know, good health, long life, lots of money, a loving family, something like that. Well, uh, God said to this king, ask me for anything and I will give it to you. And what the king asked for was wisdom. He said, Lord, give me wisdom so I can be a good king and can lead your people well. Isn't that a good thing to ask for? And uh, God answered his prayer, and he became one of the wisest men who ever lived. And you probably know by now who I'm talking about. His name was? Solomon. Great. Solomon. Solomon. Yes. (laughs) So in the time of Solomon, kings didn't just govern the country. They were also the chief judges of their countries, right? The chief justice, the head of the Supreme Court. And they were the people who had to try the most difficult cases, Um, And one day, wise King Solomon had to decide a very difficult case. Two women came into his court. Okay, so just bring one baby up for this beginning part. Okay. Okay, and you bring my crown. Yes, I'll be King Solomon. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so oh, sorry. two women came up into Solomon's court. Why don't you stand up on the, on the stage here on each side? Okay. Can you stand that side? Can you stand that side? There we go. Okay. So you've got, you've got this. And one woman was carrying a baby. Okay. But the other woman said to the king, That's Whoa. actually my baby. You see, what happened is that we both live in the same house and we both had a baby at the same time. But one night, her baby died. And she woke up in the middle of the night and found her baby dead. And here's what she did next. She traded babies with me. She put her dead baby in my bed, and she took the living baby into her bed. So that was the story that the first woman told. But of course, the other woman said, she's lying. The living baby is mine, all right? What a difficult case. There were no witnesses, no photographs, no DNA tests. And uh, nobody who could tell the difference between the two babies, except the mothers themselves. This was the original living baby. (laughs) Um, So all Solomon had in this case was one woman's word against the others. How would you have decided... Which mother was telling the truth, and which mother was lying? Oh, we we'll remove this, because it's confusing. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, here's what Solomon did. Thankfully, he was the wisest man around at the time, and here's what he did. He called out, bring me a sword! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to find a way to work this prop in, too. <laughs> uh, so then Solomon said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the living baby, and we're going to cut it in half. And you can have half, and you can have half. That doesn't sound like a very wise solution yet, right? Okay, but what happened when he said that? The, the, the mother holding the baby said, that's a great idea. You, now you say, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. That sounds fair to me. <laughs> yeah. But what did you say? No! No! Terrible idea. Just give the baby to her, right? So then Solomon knew that this mother loved the child more than her own rights, right? because she was willing to just give the baby away rather than have it die. So he knew who the real mother was. So he put down the sword, and he said, this is the real mother. Give the baby to her. So sorry, you lost your case. All right, you guys can sit down. Thank you. Thank you, John. Can I be this in the plush here? <laughs> yeah. All right. So that was a very smart solution to a very difficult problem, right? Uh, and when the people heard about this case, they knew that Solomon had been given wisdom from God. It had to be from God, because only God has that kind of wisdom. Only God is that smart. Now, have you thought that God is incredibly clever. He's so clever. He thinks of things that no one else would ever have thought of. And when you watch God solve a problem, it's like watching some kind of magic trick. It's amazing and delightful. So we've seen Solomon in court, and now I want want to watch God in court. So uh, find a Bible and look up Isaiah chapter 57 which is on page 617 of the Church Bible. 617, Isaiah chapter 57. And we're going to start looking at it at verse 14. Isaiah what? Now, you could say that the whole book of Isaiah is like one great big court case, right? And the whole of Isaiah is like one court case. Because the book starts in chapter 1 verse 2 with God saying, Hear, O heavens, and give ear. O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So he's calling heaven and earth to be witnesses in this case. And then Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 3, the Lord has taken his place to contend, to contend as a, in like a legal sense. He stands to judge peoples. And then right at the end of the book of Isaiah in chapter 66, we find a description of God's final judgment. It's the final resolution of the case that's been playing out for 66 chapters. So, you could say that Isaiah is like one great big court case, okay? And it's a case where God solves the most difficult problem in the world. So, what's the big problem in the case? Well, we see it here in Isaiah 57 in verse 15 in a nutshell. So, this is an amazing verse. Here's what God says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Okay, so what does that mean? He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So there's such a lot of passion in these words that God says. He's speaking his own true heart. And there are three reasons in this verse why God is totally above and beyond us, above and beyond all people. First, he's high and exalted. God is great and important while we are small and lowly. Second, God inhabits eternity. He lives forever. He's immortal, while we only live but a few years. And third, his name is holy. He's utterly perfect and true, while we are crooked and broken. So God is totally above and beyond us. And the word for that is transcendent. He's totally on another level of greatness. But what does the rest of the verse say? That he also lives very nearby. It says, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So with people who are humble, God says he lives where they live. His heart loves them, and his mercy wants to rescue them. And so that creates this great big problem in a nutshell. That God's own people, the ones he loves, are the ones being brought before him into his court. God is holy his people are sinful, and at the same time, God loves his people, and he can't stop loving them. And one of the worst things that we've all done wrong is to ignore the first part of verse 15. We haven't exalted God or treated his name as holy. Instead, we've ignored him and sidelined him and disobeyed him and insulted him. So when we appear before God in his courtroom, the verdict should be guilty. And the punishment should be death. And if God is just and righteous, he ought to see that. But at the same time, he really doesn't want to pass that verdict. He loves us. And he wants to rescue and heal us. And when you think about that, that is a huge problem. It's even more difficult than Solomon's difficult case. It's the biggest problem in the whole world. How is God going to solve this one? Well, God says in Isaiah 57 that he found a way that doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work for him to be angry, at least not in the long term. So look at what God says in verse 16. He says, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because people are too weak to stand up to God's anger. We grow faint. And plus, it doesn't help us to change. Because God says in verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But it didn't work because he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. So God's anger, his people, was and is justified. It makes sense. We deserve it. But it doesn't solve his big problem. It doesn't bring about the positive change in us that he wants to see. So what will solve it? Well, this chapter says God himself must act. The judge has to take off his wig and gown and put on a doctor's coat and stethoscope instead. So verse 18, God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. So the anger didn't work. It didn't produce the fruit God was looking for. So God changed tactics. He changed clothes. And he came alongside his people as their comforter and healer. And that worked. Verse 19 says, it created the fruit of the lips. That means God's people started to praise him. That's the fruit he was looking for. They stopped running and hiding from him. And they came back to him and praised his holy name. Okay, so that's what this chapter says, that's great, he changed tactics, and it worked. Okay, but you might be still scratching your head a bit, because we still haven't seen the real magic happen in this case. There are still lots of unanswered questions. How did God change his approach? What did he do with all his anger? Where's the clever part, like we saw with King Solomon? Well, the magic is in this chapter right here. But it does take a little bit of work to see it. So take a look back at verse 15. Verse 15 says and we read it again, God dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, right? Now lowly in the Hebrew also means humiliated and contrite also means crushed. Now if we think about him who is humiliated and crushed not as a general description of lots of people, but as a specific description of one person, then who would that be? Can you think of one man in particular whom God dwelt with and who was humiliated and crushed? Yeshua. Yes. Yeshua, Jesus. And when was he humiliated and crushed? When he died on the cross Now, that same Hebrew word, crushed, is used four chapters earlier in Isaiah to talk about that suffering. This is Isaiah 53, verse 5, if you want to just flip back. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So this verse in Isaiah 53 is the golden key for understanding Isaiah 57. And it's not hidden very far from the lock. How is God able to change clothes from judge to doctor and heal us? Because the wounds fell on Jesus. And so what happened to all of God's anger? It fell on Jesus. How is God able to extend to us the olive branch of peace? Peace was brought for us by the punishment of Jesus. Now it makes sense. Jesus solves the case. And if you flip forward again to Isaiah 57, there's one more lovely detail in verse 15. The end of the verse says that God will revive the heart of the contrite. And in the Hebrew, that word revive literally means cause to live. He will cause the heart of the contrite to live. So God will cause the heart of the crushed one to live. And we know that God literally caused the heart of Jesus to live after it died, after it was pierced through with a spear, he caused it to live again in the resurrection. Now that might not be clear and solid enough to call it a legitimate prophecy, but at least it's a nod and a wink to what God was planning for the future I will cause the heart to Crushed one to mere says. So the whole point of all this, as we get to the end of our passage in Isaiah, is to give you peace, to give you peace, and to teach you to marvel at God, so your own lips will produce the fruit of praise. Marvel at God, who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, and who cracked the world's most difficult legal case. He's so wise. He even asked not to be strong. And then, for us to receive from God the gift that he most wants to give us, which is peace. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. And here in verse 19, God cries at the end, Peace! Peace! To the far and near, and I will heal him. And don't you know that God is just so happy to say those words? This is the goal that he's been working towards. Peace is what he wants to be able to give you. First, that you know him and make up with him, that you make that relationship right. But that's not the only kind of peace you get, because the person who makes peace with God also makes peace with the world and with everyone in it. So that their whole lives become like a calm lake with clear water and barely a breeze blowing, gentle, serene, and settled that kind of deep peace, not necessarily quiet or safe on the outside, but filled with deep calm on the inside. Peace with God brings peace with everything else. Are you living with that kind of daily peace? Because it's yours. Jesus died to accomplish it for you. On the other hand, people who won't make peace with God won't have any other kind of peace either. Because God says in verse 20, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And when God says that, he doesn't say it with any vindictiveness, or with any spite, or with any pleasure. It's just a fact. And it's a fact that grieves his heart. There will never be any peace for someone who won't make peace with God. And now there's no reason for us not to. The case is solved and the ruling is in our favor. The son died so you could live. A settlement has been drawn up with your name at the top of it. A new life with God if you'll acknowledge that Jesus is the one who did it. It's a good deal. And one that God worked really hard for. And if you haven't firmly decided before that you're going to sign that deal, then I urge you to do it today. Pray to God and tell Him you'll take the offer and receive from Him the peace and comfort and healing that He longs to give you. Amen. Amen.